Greetings, X-Fiends. This voice belongs to Kyle, the producer of this little X-Men podcast. The episode you're about to hear was recorded at Rose City Comic Con last weekend. Due to the live nature of this episode, the audio quality wasn't as controllable as I'd have liked, and the end result isn't as clean as you're used to, so I wanted to give you a heads up. The cold open is a bit rough, but things smooth out considerably after that. Now, if you'll excuse me, I gotta duck back behind this curtain. Enjoy the show. So I've been thinking about cable. Miles. Miles, why, why would you do that? I need you to stop and I need you to consider your life choices right now. Okay, let's be honest. This was bound to happen sooner or later. I mean, I guess, but like here? Well, it just blows my mind. I mean, okay, how do you get from here to there? Baby Nathan Christopher Summers to... Uh, what, what is Cable up to these days anyway? Dude, what is anyone in the Marvel Universe doing these days? He's running around Battleworld in like a dozen different iterations. I mean, not that that's actually anything new for Cable. Uh, right, there was that thing in recent X-Force where he was replaced by a series of limited lifespan clones. See, so, you know, business as usual. Uh, yeah, but remember back in the day when everybody thought Cable was a clone and Strife, the big metal armor guy, was the original Nathan Christopher Summers? Oh, totally, yeah, because Cable was all screwed up, like he had the scars and the metal arms, everyone figured he was fake. Yeah, but so what's that guy's deal? What's Strife's deal? <laughs> Oh, Strife's a clone of Cable. He's the original clone of Cable. I love that you have to specify original clone of Cable. I know, right? X-Men. So, but you remember Cable's deal, yeah? Yeah, he's Cyclops and Madeline Pryor's kid. And you remember where Madeline Pryor came from? Sure, she's a clone of Jean Grey. Right, so for those of you who may not have been up on this, uh, Scott and Jean were basically the penultimate products of generations of genetic tampering by the student named Mr. Sinister, and the goal of this was to produce some kind of mutant messiah figure for the sole purpose of taking down Apocalypse. But then Jean Grey died, sort of, before they had a kid. But so why couldn't they just use Rachel Summers, the other kid, when she showed up? Well, first of all, that was way later. I mean, Scott was already off with Madeline by that point. But there also might be some kind of Summers kid apocalypse source universe compatibility thing, like with um, ports on computers. I don't know. Anyway, either way, it didn't work out. So anyway, Sinister built an emergency backup gene, basically. That was Madeline. And she and Scott had Cable. Well, they had Nathan Christopher, who then grew up to become Cable. You with me so far? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've covered all this, but what about Strife? Okay, I'm getting there. So Strife is from the 37th century. Like Cable. No, no, Cable is from the normal timeline. He just grew up in the 37th century. Oh, okay, how'd that happen? Well, as a baby, he'd been infected with this techno-organic virus that was incurable in the present, but a woman named Mother Ascani showed up and said that she could take the kid to the far future and fix him up there. Mother Ascani, now that's Rachel Summers, right? Well, it's one of her. So, she took Cable to the future, and that's where Strife comes from, except instead of being raised by a time-displaced Scott and Jean, he was raised by Apocalypse, so he grew up into a singular jerk with really iffy taste in pauldrons. Dude, those pauldrons are amazing. But okay, so uh, I thought Cable was the chosen hero destined to destroy Apocalypse. Why would Apocalypse want to keep a clone of that guy around himself? Well, first of all, Apocalypse didn't actually know Strife was a clone. He thought he was the original, and Nathan was the clone. We covered that earlier, remember? Um, And he was also only planning to keep Strife around for long enough to eventually take over his body. Yeah. I know. Uh, okay, so how did Apocalypse end up mixing Strife up with the original? Did he switch the clone tubes or something? Did they not label their clone babies in the 37th century? Okay, so I, I have no idea what neonatal protocols in the 37th century look like, but that's kind of beside the point, because Apocalypse wasn't the one who created Strife. Okay, right, emergency backup clones, so it would have been Mr. Sinister. While it totally makes sense for you to go there, you are in fact swinging and missing two for two, buddy. Oh, uh, okay, so if Apocalypse didn't create Strife and Mr. Sinister didn't create Strife, who did? Rachel Summers. What? 
Rachel Edderton. And I am Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to... Ep- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 76 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. And so this episode, for those of you who are not staring at us right now, is kind of a big deal because it is the first episode we've ever recorded in front of a live, uh, as it turns out, giant audience. Yeah, so hi, Portland. And a week later, hi, people who are not Portland. You can't applaud because you're not hearing right now because it's the future. Well, you, you can. You can. Just just in the future. You can, you can be linked by, by the knowledge that other people scattered across the globe are, 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 are jealously applauding of the awesome right. folks who actually made it here. You guys are so cool. Yes. <laughs> Look at you. God, you're all. You're like really intimidatingly cool. So speaking of which, this has been a really amazing show. This is our first show actually tabling as Rachel and, I, and Miles explain the X-Men and for the podcast. And it's been really cool. And we've gotten to meet a lot of really, really amazing people and see awesome costumes. And there are girl gang X-Men running around. Oh, they're and so it's cool. Like, this is like, this is, this is the moment I've been waiting for my entire life. Um, but yeah, so about this episode, let's talk about what we're going to do right now. Okay, so normally we do really deep continuity dives. We look at a specific story arc or a character or something like that, and we go really, really deep into the nitty-gritty. We look at, you know, where it's led in terms of continuity. We look at where it came from. And since this is this is our first big live panel, we decided to go a little bit more ambitious, so today we're going to explain the X-Men. Just, you know, all of it. All of it. I think we have, like, 40 minutes left. This is no problem. No, so uh, what, we're, what we're actually going to do is take a broad look at the X-Men, um, narratively, thematically, aesthetically, what's defined the franchise, what have defined the characters across a bunch of media. And to help us do that, we have this really, really amazing... You know, I said you guys are intimidatingly cool. They're so much more intimidatingly cool. I mean, you're great, but oh my God. You know these guys. Oh my God. So um, who have come from across eras and across media of X-Men... We have, should we introduce them or let them introduce themselves? Uh, let's, uh, let's let them talk about that. All right, themselves. yeah, so if you want to start, I guess to, we can go left to right from where we sit and talk, you know, who you are and what your history with the X-Men. My name is Chris Yost, and I actually got my start writing on the X-Men on an animated series called X-Men Evolution. Uh, <laughs> and from there, got into comic books, writing things like X-23, New X-Men, and X-Force, and... Now that you hear it all laid out like that, I feel a little bad for contributing to the complexity of <laughs> in continuity, so sorry. I'm Jeff Parker. I, uh, I've had the X-Men show up in various things I've worked on over at Marvel for the years, but mainly I was known for doing X-Men First Class. Hello, my name is Anna Senti, and... <laughs> I just want to say that all that stuff I did, I did it 30 years ago. So how the hell am I supposed to remember anything? (laughs) But my job was basically to hang out with Chris Claremont and torture Chris Claremont. And we, in turn, would figure out which X-Men we we wanted to torture that week or that day or that year. And we tortured the hell out of the (laughs) (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, so we have people... Uh, stretching across basically the history of the franchise to to aid us in this epic quest. Um, so I guess everybody who's here is familiar with X Men in general. Yeah. Does anyone not know what the X Men what X Men is or who the X Men are? Can you we skip like, that? Can we take brave. that as red? <laughs> All right. Okay. I know you're sitting next to someone who can explain it to you, so we're just gonna yeah <laughs> yeah see. Um, 
So actually, I'm going to start with a question for, for Anne. And um, we, we were talking last night, and we found this out, which is fascinating. So we call the X-Men our favorite superhero soap opera. Like, we've joked for, for ages that this is our stories. You have worked on the X-Men, but you also have experience writing actual soap operas. Yeah. How close an analogy is that? Well, I mean, I got a job writing a soap opera, Another World, I think it was called. And the same week, I got a, a job offer to write Marvel Comics. One paid nothing, the other paid a lot, and I chose the job that paid very little. <laughs> you know, because I was like, comic books, soap operas? I'll take comics. <laughs> and, and, and so, like, in uh, either way, I mean, we, we have clones, we have evil twins, we have psychic yeah. powers. I mean, is it like a one-for-one -one parallel? Do you just, like, put some weird, like, hair-shaped masks on your soap opera characters and you're good? Like... <laughs> Well, you know, the soap operas are both more juvenile and more adult at the same time. Because, so it has more to do with like, ooh, can I say it? Who got, who has a secret child, you know, bred from someone they should never have been with? And we don't go there in comics. Or at least not that I know. You want to explain that to me? Oh man, oh man. Uh, I, I feel like the Summers family just like automatically disproves any we don't go there about uh -oh. like possible progeny. But yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, that, that's one of the things I've always liked most about X-Men though, is you have all these twists and turns, and yes, there's, you know, all the time travel and stuff like that, but you also do have like, you know, who's having whose illegitimate child. You have all this interpersonal stuff, basically like, you know, middle school crushes with these people who have the power to, to level entire worlds, which is a terrible idea, and I'm so glad it's fictional, but goddamn, it makes for some good, some good fiction. <laughs> So I kind of want to jump on, on you know, the, the middle school crushes and terrible worlds and throw a question at Jeff, because, um, ha, no, it, it could be both, but no, actually, because I want to go back to the Silver Age here, and um, if, if you haven't read X-Men First Class, first of all, you should, because it is absolutely delightful. Um, it's, it it's basically a, a sort of a modernization, a retelling of the Silver Age, which is to say, like, back in the 60s where Stanley wrote it, you had all the black and yellow costumes, they were all part of the school, like the very beginning of the X-Men. Um, and... First class, yeah, first class revisits that and, and basically takes a lot of the old hooks and concepts and the, the original lineup um, up to a modern age. So when you're going into that, when you're looking back at the old stuff, you know, the, the Lee, the Kirby, the Thomas, how do you choose what sticks? What's fundamental and what can you take and change and update? How do you, how do you negotiate that space? Oh, well, I couldn't change a lot because, uh, I, you know, do you remember there was an X-Men chronology project or something online that would then try to keep fitting everything in chronological order. So ambitious. Was that was that was that at UncannyXMen.net? That seems like the kind of thing that they would do. It does. Uh, uh, but anyway, I was supposed to just dance in the raindrops, as they say. You know, like don't contradict anything. Good luck. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, no. So I would read through the old stories again. I would like. Well, it never said they didn't meet Doctor Strange at this point, so then I would uh, do that, or it didn't say they didn't meet the lizard. And uh, then once I kind of got into that, it's, it's one of those things, it was a much harder than it looked like to write. Uh, but yeah, if I could have really changed more things, I would have changed Angel into a girl. Because it, like, it's like, there's just Gene, and everybody was like, ooh, Gene. And it's like, that's creepy, you know? And even, <laughs> even Professor X was all over her. Thank you. <laughs> One of, one of my favorite things about first class is, is Jean's friendship with Wanda, that we actually get to see to her interact that. with a pe with a female peer. Yeah, uh, that was about the time when I was trying, you know, I, I sent them over a banana sundae or something, and I was like, 
hey, I'd like Colleen Coover to do some shorts in here. Could we do this or whatever? Because I was thinking about, you know, Scarlet Witch. And I, when I read that again, it was like, I bet these two actually would have liked to have talked to each other mm-hmm. instead of immediately fighting and blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, they have way more in common. And then we just went ahead and ran with it and ha- had the, the two going around having buddy adventures and chasing moloids and stuff like that. And, and it was like, and it made it a lot more fun. I wanted to, everything to feel younger and more like they were, you know, in a prep school. And um, actually along those lines, uh, Chris, I wanted to uh, ask you. So, I mean, you actually, uh, some of your books, like the new slash young X-Men, consisted almost entirely of new young characters. Um, so kind of mimicking what things were life in, like in the Silver Age, but bringing it forward. So how do you do that? How do you take a franchise that's so um, based around a specific group of characters, like it's, you know, Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, et cetera, almost all the time, and just basically bring in all new characters that people can identify with and uh, and watch the, the travails of while still making them feel like X-Men, without making them feel like a completely unrelated group. Like, what what makes a bunch of characters X-Men, basically? Yeah, I'm going to add to that. Like, what? Yeah, how, how do you know beyond beyond the logo and the mutants, what makes it an X book? What makes it an X-Men story? You know, we always, we took over a book called New X-Men uh, during a time right after a series called House of M, where basically all the mutants got wiped out. And they were at their lowest point, and people were gunning for them pretty much consistently. So, But the thing that we always kind of fell back to was, you know, heroic people in a world, you know, like the whole in a world that hates and fears them. And and that was always it. I mean, these kids are, it's a universal thing. Like, you know, they feel like outsiders. They feel like freaks and weirdos and all that stuff. But they're still heroes, right? On top of that, with them being teenagers and crutches and all that stuff, we... We just took what was working, more or less, and then just kind of put it in a scenario where everybody was trying to kill them all the time. (laughs) And, you know, it just like as intense as it feels to be a teenager, it just kind of amplified that. But I mean, like the the X-Men part of it, you know, yeah, they were all brand new characters for the most part. They'd only been around for a couple of years. But having them interact with Wolverine, having them interact with Cyclops, I mean, that was kind of the fun of it, too. It's like they're the teachers now. and, And that was, you know, kind of a blast to write. So you guys all came into X-Men in really, really different points and eras. Um, you've all written or interacted with the team at and through multiple iterations for each of you guys. What's the definitive central X-Men? What, what team lineup, what era do you go to immediately if someone's, if, when, when you hear X-Men? What's, what's your first stop? Oh. You? All of you, any of you, whoever wants to answer first. Australia. <laughs> <laughs> the folks with mics for now. You, you're, you guys are going to get a turn in a little bit, okay? But I'm with you on Australia. <laughs> well, for me, it's the core crowd. It's the core crowd that we worked on in the 80s with uh, Chris and the New Mutant books. I was in charge of all mutants in the universe, and that was my job title. You're in charge of all mutants, and uh, basically it all goes back to torture. It goes back to, it goes back to, yes, they're hated and hounded, but how can we turn the screws a little deeper, you know? And then sometimes it would literally be me, Chris, me and Chris sitting in a room sometimes with um, the artist where we where we would literally say Cyclops is getting kind of boring you know and he's kind of a chump because like Jean Grey doesn't really love him and so how can we like sort of torture him a little more and literally that that was some of our conversation was 
who can we torture next? We were a little gentler on the new mutants. <laughs> At first. At first, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, see figures one and two, Ilyana Rasputin. Yes. <laughs> well, that, was, that was before she was on the new mutants. Or at least some of it was. Well, you know, I'm thinking Inferno and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I mean, that's something I've, I've totally noticed is that some of the best X-Men stories are when they have their backs completely up against the wall, when just everything is terrible for them, and they're forced to really just pull through, and you kind of see who they are through all this adversity, and it works. I mean, yes, it's like horrible schadenfreude, it's just terrible for all the characters, but that's what's really so engaging. And every once in a while, we would decide to give everyone a break, mostly ourselves. <laughs> and then we did, there were like these Barry Windsor Smith stories where we were just like, and there was a story where we took that moment from Frankenstein where you're wondering, is Frankenstein going to push the little girl in the well or not? And so we did that story with Wolverine and the little, you know. Oh, Katie Bauer, at, yeah. At Katie Bauer, we're just like, is he going to push her in the well? So, you know, those were actually, those were gentle, quiet stories for us. <laughs> what about, what about you guys? Uh, Jeff, like, what's your, what's your definitive? To me, the definitive moment in, uh, X-Men is when Professor X goes to the Grand Old Opry to find Banshee. Because Banshee, Banshee's just chilling, watching some bluegrass and gets drafted into going to look for the X-Men on that island. And I was like, I like this. I want to do that. <laughs> Sean Cassidy, man. <laughs> Chris? My first issue of X-Men was, I think it was 187. It was Storm had just lost her powers. It just started like Rom Space Knight had dire wraiths. Oh, yeah. Yes. Nightcrawler and Forge on our roof, like executing an alien. And I'm just like, what the hell is this? I, <laughs> but I loved it. So I, I kept with it, and I, I didn't know who anybody was. But that era, like Claremont and John Romita Jr., like it's just magic for me. And Rachel, what about you? Oh God, I have I have a few different ones because I mean, with me, I came I came into X Men mainlining thirty years of comics in one summer, so I didn't have the 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 impressing on one era like a baby duck experience. And man, trying to think, maybe maybe first series X Factor. I know that's okay. a weird one, but I so I because it's 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 the original lineup, but I kind of got that that they were a core. But I really liked the context of yanking those characters out of their context and comfort zones and seeing what lasted and seeing them, seeing them as a team and as individuals sort of struggle to define themselves as I was sort of trying to get the hang of, of, you know, X-Men and what it was. And it was starting to, you know, mean, mean more and more to me as a series. And so that, that parallelism and that, that, that development was, was really cool and was something I, I really, really enjoyed. What about you? Oh man, so somebody somebody said the Australia era earlier, and it's such a weird uh, era. This is when the X-Men were presumed dead for very complicated reasons involving a Native American spirit and the daughter of Merlin. Long story. We'll, we'll get there on the show eventually. Um, but they were all stuck in Australia, just like being these secret superheroes teleporting around the world to like fix little things secretly. But what I liked about it is the lineup was really strange. I mean, you had some of the core, like Storm and Colossus and Wolverine, but then you had, you know, this, this new to America character, Psylocke. You had Longshot of all characters, who was not an X-Men character originally, who, and created, and I love. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it was just, it was just strange, but what I liked is it was a, it was a compact cast that was mostly just hanging out with each other, and so you really got to get into their heads, which I enjoyed. But um, what you were saying, actually, Rachel, kind of made me think of something I wanted to discuss also. You mentioned that the first run of X-Factor was your potentially definitive era. And so, so X-Men, it started out as just, you know, one book, X-Men, and then there were a lot more. And then there were a lot more. 
We remember the 90s. Oh, the, the 90s. Should we have a moment of silence for the 90s? A moment of pouchy silence. Um, <laughs> so You ruined it. Uh, or made it better. Uh, but no, I mean, for me, I think that's actually something that kind of defines X-Men as a franchise, which is that it's a franchise. You don't just have, you know, these few characters who are hated and feared. You have this entire populace who are hated and feared and who are forced to basically group up with other people around them so as not to get, you know, murdered a lot. And and I love that you can have these different teams, you know, each with a different feel. I mean, like back in the 80s, for instance, where we are right now in the show, you had the X-Men as these, you know, these hunted soldiers almost. You had X-Factor trying to figure out, like, how to kind of bridge the gap between humans between humans and mutants. You had the new mutants just trying to figure out how to grow up into adults without getting And survive killed. the experience. And, and survive the experience. With limited success. And so, um, actually, Anne, that was something I wanted to ask you about because you were there as the X-Line was really expanding, you know, as, like, X-Factor X-panding? and X-Panding. Oh, jeez. You just, you just can't. You can't avoid it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, how, how deliberate of a decision was that in terms of story versus just, you know, business reasons like sales and stuff? You know, one of the biggest things back then was we're talking pre-internet, remember. And so we got a lot of letters, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. And we read the letters and we really worked with fan feedback back then. So if we found out that, you know, Kitty Pride had a huge, people had a huge interest in seeing her on her own solo adventure, then we would do that. So, I mean, it was a really way more deeply interactive pre-internet than it is now because a lot of it was because you had to actually sit down and write a letter and tell us what you thought and tell us what you loved and tell us what you hated and we listened to all of that so that's where a lot of the miniseries came from like Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Kitty Pride. okay we don't really know where Beauty and the Beast came from I, I keep finding... So we, we had dinner with Anne last night, and I kept finding myself in the position of defending her own work to her. I'm like, I love this stuff! Well, let's just say the word train wreck came up a lot. You know? Train but wrecks like the really beautiful. beautiful cinematic kind. <laughs> and someone ends up winning like a documentary photography Pulitzer for... I, st- I still really want a Heartbreak Hotel anthology series. Right. In my dream. <laughs> but actually, I have a question about that. Are there any letters that have really stuck out to you? Like that, that, that have stuck with you over time? Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of letters. Um, you know, this is something I'm kind of a little bit guilty about. I did, even during my run on Daredevil, I did a bunch of, like, uh, animal rights stories, and I s- still, to this day, meet people, and back then I got a hell of a lot of letters from people that said, reading your stories made me become a vegetarian, and I think, gee, I didn't even become a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> And I get really guilty about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, talking about feedback. So, um, Jeff and Chris, you guys are both uh, have both written sort of uh, mainstream X stuff more more recently. Um, how does that work in the era of the Internet? Because I know X fans are kind of famously contentious. They're intense. What? Really? No. <laughs> yeah, these, these guys, by the way, thank you. We say this periodically, but, like, you guys are really shockingly civil. What's up with that? It's amazing. But we know we've we've seen what's out there. Well, the ones who, you know, the ones who leave houses are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference. 
I think, you know, the Internet, obviously, it brings instant feedback. Like, the second a book is on the stands, even before sometimes, like, people are already giving you very strong opinions about how they feel about every single thing in it. And it's, we, like I said, we started with a book called New X-Men that was in a period of time where things were bad for mutants, and we figured we would make them worse. And and we did, and, and we blew up things and hurt people, and, and people, like, were incredibly upset about it, which... Is under you know it's kind of what we were going for, but I mean like with with but it was it was amazing like how upfront people were about it and and how they felt personally about us and it was it was it was kind of shocking but you know you get used to it it's fine. yeah yeah uh, you know I uh, was trying to keep my cool during the whole X Men first class thing and you know of course I was being judged as much as anybody uh, doing mutants. Uh, by the line. And I, I finally, at one point, admit I kind of lost it. And I did a story about these characters called the Continuitines. Oh, yes. I remember <laughs> that. One of those was my avatar on social media for years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. They are my people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the whole, th- the whole concept of them was, uh, they had originally worked in a comic book shop and, uh, uh, there was a diamond distribution warehouse down in Man Thing Swamp in the Nexus of Realities. <laughs> so they started uh, because of uh, some glitch. They started getting comics from the Marvel universe, uh, you know, or from the outside from our universe that told them what was coming up. So they understood and they became uh, adamant about trying to protect continuity. And <laughs> no way it could be meta about anything, you know. And uh, so. Uh, uh, and actually, some Marvel VPs got really mad after the story because <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be doing that kind of thing. And I made all these jokes, and I had uh, Iceman suddenly hanging out with Dupe and doing all these uh, weird things that uh, normally were just com- completely breaking it down. But I enjoyed that whole thing so much. And then I brought those characters back older in Thunderbolts as the fact committee who kind of planned where the Thunderbolts went. <laughs> if you go back and look, you'll realize that the artists were all drawing them as older versions of the continuity. I love everything about that. I, yeah. My own continuity that follows me around. <laughs> and corrects you by its very nature. Yeah. It's, you yeah, kind exactly. of got a time loop going there. But I mean, I, I would say also the difference is like on the internet, like literally you read the internet, you think everybody on the planet hates you, right? Or at least me. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But then when you come to a convention, like, everybody is super nice, so nice. and super, like, pleasant and super, like, enthusiastic. And, I mean, the only time we ever had even one instant, like, it, we just killed a character named Icarus. He may be back by now. I don't know. But, he, <laughs> but uh, like... He is not that I know of. I think he's stay dead. But, Good I mean, the, the Guthrie family has been really nebulous always. Like, Obviously. they come back and, and die pretty much at, at whim. Yeah. The Guthries, they're like the new Summers, but uh, <laughs> but like this really big guy came up to our table with like a trench coat and fangs, and he's just like, "You're the ones that killed Icarus," and I'm just like, "Oh my god, this guy's gonna kill you!" <laughs> but it all worked out; it was fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, talking about continuity, and like you know, you're talking about the continuity teams. Like, I guess that's one thing that I've always enjoyed about X Men is that it becomes almost a game. I mean, this is what our show is about, to just sort of appreciate just how ridiculously tangled things get, how there's just retcon after retcon. Oh, for people who are not familiar with that, that's retroactive continuity. It's saying uh, after the fact, well, actually, what really happened was this. And, like, X-Men it's, is... Uh, you heard our cold open. That's basically all of that. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I know any kind of long running franchise is going to have some of that. But I think X-Men has more than its fair share. I don't know if that's because, like, time travel stuff got brought in early and clones got brought in early or what. But I wanted to get you guys' take on it. Like, what makes X-Men just so inherently complex? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it pays our rent. Well, I mean, okay, for us it's a good thing. I bet, you know, narratively. Well, I had a assistant, my assistant editor, Peter Sanderson, who's a really terrific guy, and he's like a, he's a continuity genius when it comes to the X-Men. So sometimes me and Chris would be like, let's rip out, you know, Storm's soul and send it to hell, and ha- they have to go to hell and get it back. And, and Peter would go, no, actually, that was done in 19, you know, you know, 1927 and issue number, you know, minus 58, and, you know. So you well, actually. Yeah, well, and then we'd go, well, can we do it anyway? And Peter would be like, well, no, actually, because in negative issue 575 in the alternate universe, you know, so, you know, and once in a while, Chris, Chris and I would just go, Peter, we're going to do it anyway. You know? Yeah, good. That's a super important role to have, that living Wikipedia person yeah. that you can go to. I guess in this case it's you two. But uh, like when I wrote Exiles, I used to go to Jordan White all the time, who was uh, assistant editor on the book, and he's great that way. I could just like, did Beast ever do this or whatever, and then I'd do some variant of it. He, he loves the old fun stuff, too. He's, he's the guy who's responsible for, for bringing Longshot back. Largely, I think. Oh, that's very much a thing he would do. Yeah. yeah. And he gave him a mustache. Curly. Yeah, a big handlebar mustache, just like he does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are we are approaching the time when we're going to do Q and A. So I have I have one last question, and this is this is a bad one. This is as someone who hates artificial binaries, I'm totally going to ask you guys to create one. Magneto or Xavier. Philosophically, uh, we, is the, the thrust of the question, but if there, if you have other, like, you know, like sartorially or whatever, that's fine too. Eyebrows, eyebrow off. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, but yeah, I mean, as far as like the philosophy of mutants, you know, what makes sense ultimately in the long term? What makes sense? Uh, uh, Nothing. You know. <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea in the early days is, you know, that radioactivity was going to give you powers. And then, you know, at some point, everyone must have gone, no, wait, that kills you, you know? <laughs> and so we, we no longer could really justify throwing people into vats of radioactive goop and having them come out stronger and better. So, you know, this idea that there was like some random weird mutant gene seemed to make some sense, but that doesn't either, really. <laughs> Um, and in terms of like, I guess what that, you know, what, what that led to, the whole, the, the mutant metaphor, if, if, if you will. Um, and as far as how characters have responded in universe to that, like, I mean, I, I know there's been some talk of Xavier as sort of an MLK figure, Magneto as Malcolm X. I think we've talked about that. We rebut that fairly vehemently because it involves a massive oversimplification of both of those actual people who, yeah, like that, that is a duality that really bugs me and that I will never not dispute. But, but um, yeah, with 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 Xavier as as the the recon- the conciliatory figure who's who's basically saying, okay, so mutants need to step up and 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 take the wheel and and say that prove that we can use these powers responsibly, police our own population, et cetera. Or Magneto is basically just like, fuck this, we owe no one. I'm sorry, oh god, I was I was I did you were so, so good. well, <laughs> y'all. I don't remember Magneto ever saying that. No, he did. Maybe in one of the Max titles. 
You're allowed to. Um, yeah, what no, but Mag- Mag- Magneto basically saying, look, we have these powers, we should use them, or, you know, at best, like, and he, he comes over sometimes, but basically taking a, a more militant stance and often a more, more aggressively separatist stance. But really, when you think about it, if you turn to the person to the right or left of you right now, would you really want to know that they can read your mind and your every thought? I mean, it is scary. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I mean, well, that's the place where the metaphor falls apart. <laughs> I mean, it, no, it is, because you can say, you can say that, that, that mutants are a, a metaphor for X or Y or Z marginalized population, but most of those marginalized populations can't control your mind. Most. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a metaphor for mutants. Yeah, basically. When it, well, it's, you know, you shouldn't what it, what actually, it yeah, I don't think you should ever really nail down what the metaphor is about, because all yeah. that does is make people not be able to connect to it. That's you're you're just limiting. It's like everybody wants to connect in their way, and just let them do it. Just be slightly vague enough. So on that note, I think we are going to open the floor to questions. I am going to steal your mic, Chris, and we can sort of all shift and share. Um, oh, thank you, Kyle. By the way, this is this is Kyle Kyle Yant. He is our producer. Um, he is amazing. He is, he is, he made all of this work before you guys came in. He is the one who makes us sound glib and awesome in recordings. This is what we sound like normally. Like, I don't even know what I'm saying. He, he controls the Dr. Doom filter. Yes. <laughs> um, and he's and actually, you know, you know, really quickly, I want to say, you, people usually do this at the end, but I feel like it's really important and I want to do it before everyone's leaving. I want to do some really quick thanks. Um, cause this is, this is, we are, we are very much a group project beyond the two of us. And, Today especially, and this, this whole con has been a really, really vivid reminder of that. So first of all, thank you so much to our amazing, amazing panelists. You guys are awesome. Um, we've, yeah, we feel so lucky to be able to be sitting here and talking about this stuff with you guys right now. Uh, Rose City Comic Con for having us. All of you guys out there, out there for, you know, for coming, for listening, you know, Patreon supporters and in particular, like, this has been kind of a madcap dash, and, like, there are some folks in the audience, um, Cameron and Anna, especially, who were up with us to, like, two in the morning photocopy, like, stapling zines and baking cupcakes for the party and stuff, and um, you are amazing. Uh, Kyle, who is, again, doing all of this, um, Administratrix Tina, who is actually at our table um, handling that right now, um, and yeah, we are we are so ridiculously. You guys, are, this is so. We nice. love you guys a lot. Wow. Thank you. This is really so, but you have questions, yes. and I should qualify before you start asking them. We are research monsters, and a lot of how we answer the deep dive continuity questions you ask on the podcast is by taking them and doing research and then answering them. So, if if you were coming up with like specific issue reference questions, there's a really good chance that our answer is going to be like, "We'll get back to you." That said, if we can't answer your question here and it's a continuity question, we'll put that up on the blog in the next week or two. It's going to happen. just might not happen today. So um, line up at the mic. If you have a problem getting to the mic or if you have no mobility concerns, raise your hand and we'll try to make sure the mic gets to you. We've got 10 minutes left. They said we could go over a little bit because we're the last ones in the room. But um, yeah. Go ahead. Hey, Cass. You're the best. Hi, Katie. Yes. I ask or should I ask? The best. Uh, hi, I'm Katie. This is Castro. You've met before. Hi, Katie. Castro. Yes. Um, <laughs> Castro has a question that I feel might be best for Jeff, although maybe everybody can answer, which is she wants to know if you think that Marvel Girl and Squirrel Girl could be friends, and if they were, what kind of adventure they might have together. Oh, Aww. I think. Best question. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, bar, the, best of, the rest of you better be ready to live up to that. <laughs> They'd very clearly be friends, like really good friends. And uh, I'm thinking kind of one of those forest adventures where you end up on some kind of log racing down a river. That sort of thing, control steered by Gene's mental power and aided by squirrels that Squirrel Girl summons, that sort of thing. Is that good? <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> yeah, follow that, dude. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. This one's actually for the pros. Um you mentioned earlier that uh, you kind of wished you could go back and uh, make Angel uh, a girl. Um, I'm wondering what all of you, what's another change you wish you could make, possibly even to your own work or to that which came before, that you think would be more fun than what happened? That's a good question. Hmm. I think maybe I should should have cut off Longshot's mullet. <laughs> <laughs> Follow that. <laughs> I agree. She should have put off long shots more. I guess maybe not blowing everybody up would be more fun. <laughs> so, be, the X-Men being what it is, it will probably never have a conclusion. To well, not, not counting X Men the End. There have been there, there's a series titled X Men the End. So it's not canonical, but it's various, there. You know, tries at making a conclusion. Um, if it were down to you to decide, you know, what would be a logical endpoint for the X Men as a series, what it is bending toward, what do you think that would be? We keep getting really good questions here. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is intense. <laughs> like a logical end to the X-Men, like as a series, which is about hate and fear, I either got to believe that it's one of two things, the elimination of hate and fear, or they all die. <laughs> I've actually, I've got an answer to this, and this is, this is this answer kind of stolen from Kurt Busiek. One of his favorite eras, and he talks, he's, he's talked, he actually came and talked to us about the Silver Age and the, the Phoenix retcon, and one of the things he brought up was that he really likes the era when the first time the first time Professor X faked his own death, um, when the X Men go off and kind of live normal lives outside of superheroing, and they're still superheroing around. But like, um, and specifically, what what he talked about is uh, Cyclops is is a, a news reporter, and that that always you know got him thinking that if Xavier had really actually wanted to make a significant difference, what he would have done is make it more about the actual conversation around mutants, make it more about you know community about controlling the message or at least contributing to the message and so the x-men kind of expanding and diffusing into into that kind of thing um seeing i guess x-men grow up and away and pursue that dream and idea in other directions would be mine having having them you know scatter on and and then see that out into the universe i really like that idea uh, this is much more of a kind of a character describe thought question which of the X-Men do you think would be great suited for a professional wrestler? Professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Longshot is, is very much a performer, so... 
and you know he could he could dodge all around and everyone would boo at him as he as he dodged and I, weaved. I feel like there are so many people who are so intensely qualified to answer this question, and all of them are going to call and yell at us after it goes up. <laughs> Like I, I well, that's, that's part of the job. It's just like, like, like I can, Chris I can hear, I can feel Chris and L glaring from somewhere in the southeastern <laughs> United States because because I don't know how to feel this. Um, yeah, those guys, Did frenzy. Yeah, yeah, he was one for yeah. a minute, right? He was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you can't stop the juggernaut. You can't move the blob. They could do a tag team thing, and it would be really, really violent. Oh man, Nightcrawler! Wow. Night, Nightcrawler would be amazing. <laughs> Nightcrawler would be super cool because he'd, he'd kind of be out of nowhere. He'd be sort of. Interesting fringe. And see, now I'm just taking this to which of the X-Men oh, would I want to see. What about like, the entire ecstatics as a tag team in Shakara? Can we do that? That's, that's the entire, that, 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 that is the entirety of my professional, professional wrestling knowledge right there on display. <laughs> but I feel strongly about it. I was just wondering if there are any uh, currently inactive characters that any of you miss in particular. Besides Maggot, obviously. Besides Maggot. Um, and do you have any like from the uh, from the sort of seventies and eighties that you wish were were still around? Um, who? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Man. No, none of the boring ones should ever come back. <laughs> the best forge is Wolverine in the X Men Forge. That's 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 solid. We had an action figure of him in college, and people would ask where we got a custom Miles action figure. It was, it was kind of it um, was fantastic, uncanny. Oh, oh. <laughs> but it, but actually, I think I might say Forge. I always liked the way that his cultural background and his powers sort of interacted and contradicted each other. I always thought that was an interesting examination of the ways that ability, identity, and past and present interacted. So I, I, I'm told he's coming back in uh, Jeff Lemire's Extraordinary X-Men. So I'm, I'm excited about that. So maybe that's a cheat answer since he really is coming back. So I'm just going to go to Maggot. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I mean, they're technically back, but I, I want Doug Ramsey and Warlock brought back better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're neat and there are cool story things happening. But like when, when I say I want them back, it's not the versions that actually came back. <laughs> So I think we have time uh, for, if Let's you guys are really more. quick, both yeah. questions. How has the vagueness of the mutant metaphor impacted you? Someone start? <laughs> We've been starting all the rest of them. Guests. Yeah. What's your mutant metaphor? Wait, what was the question? I thought we answered uh, that How has the vagueness of the mutant the metaphor vagueness? impacted yeah, you? What are, what are, what are the, the versions? Do you, mean, do you mean like what are the versions of it that we key in on as readers or as points of identification? Um, I guess my answer would kind of be, maybe it's a cheat answer, but for me it wasn't even the mutant metaphor so much as something else that I felt was unique to X-Men at the time, which was the immense diversity of the cast. Like, you saw diversity across super teams at the time, but the era that I started reading in when my father gave me a bunch of comics was uh, during Claremont's run, where the diversity was head and shoulders above any other book I was aware of. And so a book that gave me the opportunity to put myself in the shoes of people who weren't like me, not necessarily people with optic blast or storm powers, but people with a different ethnic background or a different gender than me, I, that was, I thought, huge. And I think that's something, people talk about the mutant metaphor, but I think that's one of X-Men's greatest strengths and always has been. I think also for me it was because there were very few girls in the industry back then. And so the fact that you were a girl reading and making comics, you were really quite a freak, you know. And then, you know, it was something that embarrassed my family and friends, you know. So, 
you know, that very happily went away. I think it was four years ago at Emerald City Con when I went, shit, this is half girls here. Mm -hmm. And I was really, really happy about that. <laughs> For me, a really big thing is, is actually not a specific point, but the, the range and variety. The fact that mutant powers are as, as, you know, wildly divergent as they are is massively unrealistic and ridiculous, but it's also one of my favorite things about them and about the X-Men because when you're actually looking at points of identification, vectors of identification, I think it's really, really easy to see any group, any marginalized group, even ones that you're part of as a monolith. And just the sheer amount of variation in what made the X-Men different is something that I've always really, really loved about them because that, that subtly and continually reinforces that no, there's not, mutants are not one thing, what it means to be a mutant, even just on a purely practical level, is wildly different between any two people. Okay. All right, Jake, you're up. Yeah, he's, he's, he can't take much more. Let's get him. Right. <laughs> What's your question? Which one of the yeah, X-Men is bad at, best at fighting Sentinels? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Hmm. I'm going to go with Colossus. <laughs> I think, so I think for, for, for me, I, I keep doing these cheat answers, but for me, it's the X-Men as a team. And when they're fighting something as big as Sentinels, Aww. hear me out, hear me out. Because man, when you can punch a giant robot while you're zapping it in the face and you're ineffectually clawing at its back, which is somehow really effective every time, and tearing its metal apart, I mean, I wouldn't want to be that sentinel. I wouldn't want to be a sentinel anyway. sample teamwork again here if it's cool with Adam. Right. Like. Uh, but uh, that being said, yeah, Colossus is actually a really good choice because he could just tear that thing apart. Or Rogue, who can do the same thing from the air, so that's even better. Well, my answer is actually entirely Jeff's fault, and that is Cyclops, and it's based on a scene from First Class where he without access to his powers, takes out a sentinel using the mansion defenses in the danger room. Because, I mean, sentinels are also oh, also because of the time when he wiped out the sentinels by convincing them to go fight the sun, which is my favorite Silver <laughs> Age thing ever. That's, that's the best. Like, we have our answer. Because well, the sentinels are, are made to be, to be fairly, fairly mutable and fairly versatile. And so having, having you know, what, what beats them isn't going to be brute force. It's going to be split-second strategy. Yeah. And you know, you when get, you, you get think a book for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and we should we should point out too that that both of the the those folks who were, were up here, those Jasper and Kess are both both consulting experts who are yeah. have been. Oh, you have you have heard them mentioned on the show. Um, they are they are our go-tos for questions about X-Men stuff for kids, and they are amazing, and they know a lot about continuity. They are, someday they will, be ta- they will be taking over the podcast. So a- Any minute now, really. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that about wraps it up. Do we want to do how, I guess, so Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, today at Rose City Comic Con, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. Oh, um, yeah, and guys, thank you all so much for coming here, getting a chance to, to see you all like you know in person staring terrifyingly faces. at us you do you have you have it's beautiful neat. faces you do um, we thank you uh, we uh yeah really? you, you guys all make this worth it
this is really this is hard stuff sometimes, but it becomes immensely easy when we know of the glorious criticism and approval mixed into a beautiful alchemy of feedback that you give us. Thanks, guys. You're all really nice. <laughs> Keep that up. But yes. um, also, so we are we are tabling all weekend. Um, we are at 09 in Artist Alley. All of these guys, folks are also in 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 the fairly immediate vicinity to there. Um, N13. V7. G something. <laughs> <laughs> I had it. <laughs> well played. Um, and we also, if you are not tired of us tonight, we have a meetup and party that is happening tonight. There are flyers with directions. It is at 8 p.m. It is the Steep and Thorny Way to Heaven, which is an alternate, alternate and underground art and performance venue in Portland. You can get there really simply on the number six train, I think, line. Bus, bus, yes. I'm, it's been a, re- this is my third panel today. It's been a really long, ah, oh, number six bus, bus. It wheels oh. things. Um, there are, there, or you can find, uh, directions if you, if you go to the Facebook event. Um, it's going to be ridiculous and fun. I baked a lot of cupcakes. Actually, mostly Anna baked a lot of cupcakes yes. last night. Uh, yes. All ages, lots of drinks. Most importantly, though, a full size X-Men 141 Days of Future Past wall that Rachel made and is awesome. Yeah. And again, um, so Dave and Cameron have helped me. Dave helped with construction of it um, from the start, but like we spent a really big chunk of Friday like setting it on fire and stamping on it and <laughs> like spreading dirt mixed with decoupage medium over it. It's so cool having a driveway now. Right. I can I can just I can just like set stuff on fire. So for that and many other things that <laughs> may yeah. or may not have been set on fire, uh, yes, uh, come and join us. And otherwise, um, thank you for listening to our show and please keep doing that thing and we will keep making it for you. Oh, you guys want to know a secret? So this isn't going to go up for another week. Can we tell them what we're going to do for the next episode, 77? Sure. We're going to finally do Fallen Angels. We're really excited. (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, again, so much for coming. Thank you, guys, so much for being being our our guest experts, um, joining us on this this ridiculous odyssey. We will see you around. Go go Comic-Con. Yes. (laughs) 